Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 as we continue our study through the book of Joel. And today we will be taking the first 17 verses of Joel chapter 2. Joel is speaking for the Lord here as he, as he gives this prophecy to, to Judah. Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy hill. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. To the years of many generations, a fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them the people are in anguish, all faces turn pale. They run like mighty men, they climb the wall like soldiers, and they march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other, they march every one in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city, they run on the walls, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, The sun and the moon grow dark, and the star lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, Gather the people, sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me this morning as we pray before we go through this text this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we 
thank you for your word and we thank you that every single part of it is inspired every part is is valuable it is profitable and so i pray this morning that as we as we go through this text that again your holy spirit would be the teacher that he would reveal the truths to us from your word and that we would go out better equipped to be your disciples with a better understanding of our need to deal with sin and that we recognize that you will always deal with sin and ultimately it will be dealt with. And so I pray this morning that we will go out encouraged to be those who continue to deal with sin in our lives, I pray in your name. Amen. While we've been looking, we started the book of Joel last week and we would say again that the the primary If we were going to just boil down the book of Joel, we would say and identify this book as the book called, we would call it the day of the Lord. In other words, it deals with the day of the Lord in a a deep fashion here in the book of Joel. Now the book, the day of the Lord is a day that brings both judgment and blessing. It is a time where we, we see references in scripture to a great day, and we will see today a day where of dark gloom, of cloudiness. We see this that the the ultimately the luminaries, the sun and the moon and the stars are are darkened. But it is also a day of blessing in the future for those who are gods. And we'll see that later on in the book of Joel, where he talks about about blessings that will come to the nation of Israel and ultimately to all those who will be on God's side, those who are in right relationship with him. And so he will bring uh, blessings that will come upon them. And so there's that, that blessing and judgment that come together for the day of the Lord. And so today, last week, I should say, we looked at the, the day of the Lord in, in chapter one, and we saw really that there was, a, there was a locust plague that God had brought upon Israel that was destroying the land. And God had brought this as judgment for disobedience. We're not told. He doesn't tell us why, what they did, or what was necessary for them to turn from. But he described the devastation of the land that that locust had brought. And in light of that devastation, and recognizing that God had brought it upon them, he calls them to turn back to the Lord. He calls them to, to go back to Him primarily because of what has taken place in the land. In other words, this, is, this destruction of your land will not cease until you return back to the Lord. But in verse 15, he, he describes, he says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. He references to a, a time in the future where there will be another day that will come. And it's called the day of the, of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, literally. And it's, it's a time in the future where there will be, God will bring judgment and blessing. And he says that day is, is near. The idea is that it's imminent. It could happen very quickly and, and, or at any time. And so there's this, there's this day that is coming that will be awful and, and will be more than anything that has ever happened in history before. And so as we go into chapter 2, he's going to expand on that idea. 
He's going to expand on that idea and he kind of is working off the locust plague on one side and he's also pointing to something greater than the locust plague that has come. He's pointing to this day of the Lord that will come in the future. And he calls ultimately at the end of this chapter as he describes this day of the Lord using the locust, he is going to then call them to repent in light of the day of the Lord that is to come. In other words, you need to repent now because there's still blessings for you now, but you don't want to be caught on the wrong side of the day of the Lord because it is, there's a potential for even those who thought they were in right relationship with God because they were God's covenant people that they will ultimately be judged on the day of the Lord rather than having the blessings that come. And so in this in this chapter then, he begins for the first 11 verses and he really talks about, as it were, the day of the Lord to come as he uses references to the, to the locust. And he's kind of describing what the locust does and yet there's an intensity and there's a degree here that seems to go beyond the locust. And he uses language that would be, we would say, uh, would be indicative of of locust and yet on the other side we would hear languages from the rest of scripture that we would say those words are the same words that he uses for the day of the lord so we're going to talk about gloom that that might come with the locust plague as as they blot out the sun and yet that's the same language that is referenced in in the day of the lord in other places to speak of god's judgment that he brings at the time that he comes. And so there's kind of this expanding and intensity that goes beyond just the the plague that is with them at that time. So he begins, first of all, in verse 1, and he really just gives us a warning call. And then in the verses 2 to, to 11, he gives us a description of it. And so he, he first calls and he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm in my holy mountain. And so there, there's this, the idea here, there, were, there was a trumpet that looked like a sheep's horn and they would blow it. And it could be for, for, for good things, but it could also be the alarm when, when they were under attack. And he says, I want you to blow the trumpet in Zion. I want you to do on my holy hill. In other words, this is in Jerusalem and this is on the holy hill. This would be the temple mount. I want you to blow it. I want you to call. And, and the idea is to sound that alarm as is, is a long blast. I want you to give that long blast that should cause people to be fearful, people to be struck, who will come and, and, and recognize that there is, there is a problem. He said, let all the inhabitants of the land, and this would include both the northern and southern tribes, and he says, be alarmed, sound the alarm, for the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near. And he says, here's why you need to be alarmed. Here's why you need to sound the trumpet, because there is a problem here. Now notice this, they're blowing the trumpet from the, from the temple. They're not blowing it from the walls. They're not blowing it from the borders. They're blowing it from where? The temple where God is worshipped. And he said, there's a spiritual problem here. There's something, this, the invaders aren't from out there. The problem is, is that you need to come and meet the Lord here at Zion. And so he calls them and he says, you need to come. You need to sound the alarm. Let all the inhabitants tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. 
it's, it's coming upon us and surely it is near. And again, the idea there is, is not so much that it is immediate, but that it is eminent. It could happen at any time. God's day of judgment could come. It's, you get the idea, it's hanging over their heads. It could happen at any time. The, you know, you, you, you talk about, you never know when the other foot's going to fall, right? And here's what he's saying. It could happen at any time. It is hanging over you. Surely it is near. And then he begins to describe this day. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn spreads over the mountains, so this, there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor has there, will there be again after it. So to the years of many generations. So he begins to describe this. And some, some scholars and many scholars would see this actually as, as a real army. But I would understand that he is again describing the locust and then he is looking farther down to the road to the day of the Lord. And he said there's a, a day of darkness and gloom and you could see and, and the a day of clouds and thick darkness. You can see to some degree this would happen with the locusts. As they came, they would come over the land and they would, there would be darkness and they would blot out the light. But this... This uh, language is also seen in speaking of the day of the Lord. In Revelation 6, he talks about there's a great earthquake and the sun became black and sackcloth was made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars fell out of the, to the earth as a fig tree crashed unripe figs and were shaken by the great wind. And so there is, there is this idea of, 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 of thick clouds and darkness Often the presence of God and sometimes the presence of God in judgment. And so there are these great clouds of thickness used to depict uh, God's presence or His judgment. And here He's speaking of His judgment. Uh, and so God's disfavor. And so the idea here is God's wrath is coming. There's this dark, thick darkness and God's wrath is coming against them give glory to the lord jeremiah says before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountain dusky mountains and while you're hoping for light he makes it deep in darkness and turns to gloom and so again there's the idea of judgment in ezekiel 34 12 as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among the, he is among his scattered sheep so I will care for my sheep and I will deliver them from the places to which they were scattered on cloudy and a gloomy day. And so the idea here is God, God's wrath is coming and it's pictured by the locust plague as it comes upon these people, upon Israel and Judah. And then he depicts the, again the locust as a great and mighty people like he did in chapter 1 verse 5. Nor will there again be, and then he says, nor will there be anything after it to many years of generations. And so he says, this locust plague is bad, but this, what it's pointing to, this language of gloom and doom, points to a time when the Lord is coming in great judgment. And when that day comes, that, that day of the Lord that he talked about, that is coming, when it comes, there will be nothing like it ever again. There will, be, there will be nothing 
to the years of many generations. In other words, it will not happen again. This judgment will, be, will come and there will never be anything like it. And then he says, as fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns, the land is like the garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. Nothing at all escapes them. And so he says, when the, when the locust comes, they consume before them and behind them a flame it burns. In other words, it's basically they scorch the earth. They eat, they take, and everything is left. In fact, often after it go, they go through, it looks like it's been scorched because there's just nothing but barrenness that is left. And so he says, here comes the locust eating the land. And it says, the land is like a garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing escapes them. And so again, there is the idea here that the locusts have come, they have eaten, and they have left nothing behind them. And where the land once was, the, was like the Garden of Eden, and we often think of the Garden of Eden at the beginning, but the, Eden means luxurious. Or, 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 and so the idea here is the land was in full bloom. It, had, it, had, it was fruitful, it continued to give back to them. And it was already where it should be before they came. And now they have come and they have made it from the Garden of Eden, basically, back to a desert. And so the, the land behind them is now a wilderness. Now the Israelites would have understood this a little bit. Because for them, they were already resting on the promises that God would actually change the land for them and make their wilderness into Eden. It says in Isaiah 51.3, Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness, and He will make it like Eden. So put yourself in the place of the, of the Jews as they listen to this. And they're saying, uh-oh, right? God's supposed to be making our wilderness into Eden, and yet, in this day, those who oppose the Lord will ultimately be, it will be the other way around. And He's already made our land into wilderness. How much more will He do it when He comes for the, the day of the Lord in the future? And so there's that, there's that reversal, that uh, a reversal of God's blessing here against Israel and against all those who oppose them. It says, all, and nothing escapes them. Nothing will escape in the land, and nothing will escape God in the future. He says their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. So he says these these. First of all, this locust looks like war horses. The appearance of horses and like war horses they run. Now we often think of a horse as something that we use in agriculture, but for them the horse was a weapon. It was a weapon for in warfare. And so it was a feared military weapon. And he says these locusts are coming like the appearance of horses and they run like war horses, they run. And so they are swift. They are destructive. They cannot be stopped. They are, 
in many ways, the, 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 the idea of war horses here has the idea that they are coming under control. The idea is with chariots. In other words, they, they are coming to, to overcome an attack. Now, if we remember, Israel was forbidden to multiply horses. They were to trust in Yahweh for the protection. And so, for the Israelites, as they see the horses coming against them, what they actually see is God's judgment coming upon them. Everything that is hostile to Israel, everything that is hostile to Israel is now coming against them because horses were, were, uh, were supposed to be God was supposed to be their protection, and yet these horses are running over them. Micah 5.10 5, says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. And so there is going to come a time where the Lord will cut off their horses and he will judge those who are against him. He says these these Locusts are coming with the noise of chariots, the leaping on top of mountains like crackling of flame and fire consuming the stubble, like mighty people arranged for battle. And he says, these locusts are coming like the noise of chariots, that you can hear the clacking of the wheels over the stones, and here you can hear the jumping of the locusts as they leap forward. They leap on top of tall mountains, they can't be stopped like a crackling flame of fire consuming the stubble. And again, you can, you can hear the chewing of the locust, like a mighty people arranged for battle. They are coming forward. The locusts give the impression of a countless army seemingly on the march in a battalion ready to engage in battle. And here they are consuming the land. And so the locust is a well-disciplined army orderly in rank and file. Then he says, we see their operation in verse 6, before them the people are in anguish and all the faces turn pale. In other words, the people can hear the locusts coming. People can hear them coming before they get there. And their, their face is in anguish. It means to whirl or dance or writhe in pain. It's often used in a reference to childbirth. And there's a pain here as the people's face turns pale. There's some debate whether this means pale or red face, but either way, there is anguish on their face that is revealed as this army marches forward. They run like mighty men, they climb the walls like soldiers, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. And so again here, the, the, the locusts are like, run like mighty men. They are strong. They climb the walls like soldiers. They, 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 they're not stopped. We saw the picture of them going through the pastures in chapter 1, and now in chapter 2 they've reached the city. But the walls don't stop the locusts, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. It's like they are on a mission. They don't get in each other's way. They march in, in, in according to the way they should go. They don't crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. And it seems like the people in Jerusalem had set some sort of defense up to try to keep the locust out of the city. And simply they were unable to. They simply broke through. They didn't break ranks. They just kept going. There was nothing that could stop them. 
They say they rush onto the city, they run on the walls, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. So you can imagine if, you, if there was a locust plague or, and there was all of those locusts and they, they just rush onto the city, they run on the walls, which means they're, they're, that was the primary defense of the city. They can't stop them. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows. Now remember in the Middle East, they had shutters. They don't have glass windows like we do. And so there's just, you could shut the shutters, but even that wouldn't keep them out. They would continue to come in. And so they would continue to move forward and to move forward and to move forward. And again, all of this is a picture of, of what is to come, the destruction that is to come in the day of the Lord, just like the destruction that is being done and the unstoppableness of the locusts. So will the destruction that comes in the day of the Lord. There will come a time where Israel will, where Jerusalem will be under attack. There will be a time when the houses and the cities will be plundered in the day of the Lord. It says in Isaiah 13:6, their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Jerusalem, Zechariah 14:2, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem in battle, and to the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, and the woman ravished, and half the city will be exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And so again, Joel is using end time language here to show that beyond the locust plague, there is coming a day of judgment from the Lord where he will bring out judgment on, on the nation of Israel in the day of the Lord. He says, before them the earthquakes and the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Now he, he elevates to a universal scope here the intensity increases and grows ominous this is the day of the lord there's a time coming before them just like the locusts when they came forward would cause the earth to shake and tremble and the sun and the moon to grow dark he now says there's coming a time in the day of the lord where this will take place Isaiah 13, 13 says, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. There's coming a time where, where the earth will shake before the Lord as He pours out His wrath. The sun and the moon and the stars will lose their brightness. Isaiah 13, 10 says, For the stars of heavens and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will shed its light. And the stars will lose their brightness. The idea means to gather or to simply withdraw. They will simply stop giving their light. They will no longer send forth their brightness. Amos 5.20 says, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is, not, it, is it not very dark with no brightness in it? And so he, he expands his language here and it's pointing to a day that is coming where God will pour out his fury, where the luminaries will no longer give their brightness, where the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. Now this sounds awful. And all of the things that have taken place, everything that has taken place even in, in the, 
in the first chapter that's happened to their land. And as he points to all of this, all of this devastation that is taking place, even with, with the universal things that are happening, but maybe the most frightening part of all of this to the day of the Lord is not the fact of the events, but the, the fact of the one who is actually perpetrating the events. He says in verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. In other words, the most scary part about this is the fact that this is being brought about by Yahweh. Yahweh is bringing this judgment. He is the one who is pouring out his wrath. He is the one who is sending this army before him. Surely his camp is great. In other words, he has resources of the universe at his disposal. It is great and it is numerous. For strong is he who carries out his word. In other words, those who come in for, at Yahweh's calling are strong because they carry out his word. In other words, they are empowered by Yahweh himself. The strength in their battle is not found in them or even in their numbers, but in his strength. The great day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And again, he points back to Zechariah 14.2 where the day is great and awesome. And he says, this is, this, the Lord is uttering with His voice. He is destroying those who are against Him. So the prophet says, if this is brought about by Yahweh, if He's the one who is doing it, if He's the one who's bringing this great and awesome day of the Lord, Joel 2.31, if it's a day to evoke fear and terror and dread in the heart, if people are helpless because God is the one who's doing it, He says, who can endure it? Who can endure it? And the implied answer is simply, no one. No one can. No one can stand in the wrath of God. His army is great. His instruments are powerful. His day is great and awesome. No one can withstand the wrath of God. His judgment is irresistible. And Joel is pushing the people of Judah and he's saying, listen, you're in great trouble. You're in great trouble. God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming. Who can endure it? Who can stand well, Joel doesn't leave us there. Because he calls us not, he now focuses and he goes away from the day of the Lord and he goes to the day of repentance. And he gives us hope that we, that we will not be under the wrath of God. He says in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And so after saying there's nothing you can do, your God is orchestrating all of these things, He says, actually, there's one thing you can do. You can't stand in His wrath, but there's one thing you need to do. There's a sense of urgency. Do it now, declares the Lord. I'm the one who declares what you need to do. And we would say this, repentance always starts with the Lord and it starts with His Word. 
And he's the only one who can bring about repentance. And it is only being confronted by his word that causes repentance. And so Yahweh says, even now return to me with all your heart. And he begins to describe, we would call what true repentance is. He describes it here at the beginning of verse 12 and the beginning of 13. Return to me with what? All your heart. This is the center of your intellect, the center of your, of your emotions and your will. And he says, return to me with your affections. Return to me with, with your understanding. He says, I, I offer this to you. This is my offer that you return to me with the moral purpose of unresolve. And he says, I want you to return to me with a whole heart. It needs to be something that is internal. It's not just external. Now it will, he says, it will result outwardly in repentance. He says, they were to return with fasting and weeping and mourning. But those were supposed to be not something, weren't sufficient in themselves. There needed to be first a heart change that, was dem- that would ultimately be dis- demonstrated by an outward expression. And so he tells them, return to me with all your heart. Come back to me. I am where you need to go. With fasting, weeping, and mourning. There should be, with a stop eating, start crying, start crying out to me. And he says, and rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, just in case you missed it, just in case you think that you know what, if I just rend my garments and I yell and scream a bit, that will be sufficient. He wants you to know, actually, it's not the outward that he's looking for. It's the inward. Rend your heart. Tear your heart. Have a broken heart before God because you have sinned against Him. And then he reiterates here, now return to the Lord your God. Turn to Him. You need to return to Him. And now he gives us really what we could say is the hope, the incentive to repent. Return to the Lord. Well, why should I? If, if God is angry and wrathful and judgmental and he, I can't stand in His wrath, how can I turn to Him? And He says, here's the incentive. Here's the incentive. And now He, he gives us really what God said to Moses. Four of these five terms were given to Moses in Exodus 34, 6 when the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And here he says, here's your motive. Here, here's the incentive to come in repentance because right now, judgment is coming. He says, for God is gracious and compassionate. And he goes to the character of God and he says, here's, here's, where, here's the incentive. He is gracious and compassionate. It denotes tenderness, speaks of intense love of a parent for a child. He is slow to anger, literally long-nostrilled, picturing someone who's taking a deep breath in order not to get angry. And he's saying, listen, God is he's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. This is why you can turn to Him. This is why you can repent. Because God by His character is slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. 
refers to an attitude as well as an action, an attitude of love and kindness. It, it includes the idea of mercy even when an object is unworthy. And he says he's putting his love upon you. He is, he's abounding in loving kindness. In other words, the appeal to turn to God is God's character. And then he says, relenting in evil. Relenting in evil. Now, <clears throat> for some of us, we're like, whoa. Whoa. What did you just say? Relenting in evil. I thought God was righteous. I thought he said he didn't tempt anyone. I thought he wasn't responsible for sin. How on earth can God relent of evil if God is righteous and holy? Well, the word here has the idea of, of, of calamity. The idea of bringing calamity. The Holman Christian Standard says, and he relents from sending disaster. The New King James relents, he says, relents in doing harm. In other words, he's not saying that God is doing evil, but the calamity that he's bringing about is God's judgment, and God has every right to bring about judgment for sin. And he says, but he's relenting in, of calamity when there is what? Repentance. Repentance. And so he says, here's, here's the incentive. Maybe God will what? because of his character, be forgiving. He says in verse 14, who knows whether or not he will turn or relent. Now this is speaking from the human perspective and saying, is God going to take away the plague? Is God going to take away his judgment? It's not doubting the character of God. The fact that God will forgive it is established in verse 13 because God calls you to repent. But will God relent in this situation and the idea here is this. Man cannot demand God's forgiveness. Man can ask for God's forgiveness, but he doesn't, he doesn't say that if you repent, you put God over a barrel. This isn't something that puts you in control of God. And so he says, perhaps he will relent and leave a blessing behind him. And again, he goes back to the idea of physical blessing here, and, and it's, it's borne out in the rest of the verse, even a grain offering or a drink offering for the Lord your God. In other words, we saw in chapter 1 that the sacrifices had been stopped. There was no more grain. There was no more wine to make the wine offering. There's no more for grain offering. And he says, perhaps God will even give you grain for a grain offering and, and drink or wine for a drink offering for the Lord your God. And he says, if you repent, if you come back, uh, this God who is gracious and compassionate, who, who deals with your problems, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting of calamity, perhaps He will do this for you. And so he says, turn to God. Turn to God and maybe He will allow, and this, remember we're speaking to the, to the Jewish nation here who are under the law, maybe He will provide a way for you to be right with Him again because you can sacrifice before Him. You can now have a way to keep your covenantal relationship with Him 
because you will be able to sacrifice as required before Him. And for us as believers, we, we don't need to have sacrifices, right? We don't need to go to an altar. But this, same God, our, this is the same God that is our God, slow to anger, compassionate, loving kindness, relenting in calamity, who will what? Forgive us if we will turn to Him in repentance and He will restore the relationship just like He's restoring the relationship with them because that they can now be related to Him because the sacrifices were done. We too, when we confess our sins, will ultimately be restored in relationship to God. And so after really giving them individual a call individually to repent. He now goes to a more corporate idea of repentance. And just to show you how desperate the situation, he turns to the, this, the covenant people and he says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Again, a, a, a reference to Jerusalem. Consecrate a fast and proclaim a solemn assembly. In other words, call everyone to come. Proclaim an, a, a solemn assembly. Call the, the nation together. Call everyone together in order to, because there is an emergency here. There's a problem here. And he says, uh, again, this, these assemblies could be for good or for re- national repentance. And he says, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, get the youngest and the oldest. There was, there was also, he says, sanctify the, 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 the congregation. The idea here is solemn occasions called for full ritual purification. And so there's, there's a need for purification when they came together. Preparation for a solemn gathering time. General purification rites included bathing, washing, clothing, dressing and clean apparel and abstaining from sexual activity. And he says, sanctify the congregation, make them clean to stand before God. And he says, this is emergency situation here. God's wrath is coming. Repentance needs to be done. And guess what? Everybody's in. We need to recognize how, how dire straits we're in. Gather the children and the nursing infants. I mean, that, Normally, they wouldn't take those to an assembly. The, the nursing mothers would stay home and he says, bring them, bring the little infants, let them scream. We, this is, this is, we need every, all hands on deck. Let the groom come from, out of his room and the bride, bride out of her bridal chamber. The idea here is not that they're coming from separate rooms. These people are on their honeymoon. This is, and he says, this is even more important than consummating your marriage. Come out. Stop, stop all activity because of the emergency that is taking place. He says, when, when you've gathered them, let the priest, the Lord's minister, weep between the porch and the altar. Again, inside the vestibule of the, of the, uh, of the temple, the porch and the altar on the east side of the temple. And so they, where they did burned offerings, and he says, let the priests weep between the altars. Let them weep in repentance. And let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among 
the people say, where is their God? And so this is what the, the, the priests were commanded to say. Spare your people, O Lord. We're in covenant relationship with you. We are your people. Spare us. And do not make your inheritance a reproach. Don't make your inheritance, basically the idea is, is, is an epithet. Don't make them someone accursed that people are throwing at them. And he says, we're your people. We're your inheritance. Don't make us a reproach. Don't make us something where people hurl insults at us. And so their appeal here, first of all, is listen, you're in covenantal relationship with us. We're your people. Spare us. Save us. And so too, we as believers, we often cry to God and we say we are what? We are His children. And we appeal to Him based upon our relationship with Him. We are your children. And so the they first appeal to Him first upon their covenantal relationship with Him. We are yours. He says, and don't make us a byword among the nations. Right? Don't make us one of those statements that people use when they talk. Right? We talked about the Corinthians. They were so corrupt that when, it, when we talked about someone being sexually immoral, they, they talked to you about being Corinthicized. Right? He says, don't make us one of those. Don't make us a byword that people use us in conversations. Why should the people say, where is their God? And really we would say, maybe this is is the height of the whole passage. Because now they call on God to forgive them them and to grant repentance not for their sake, but for His glory. Right? Why should the people say, where is their God? Now, God, save us. Grant us repentance and give us, restore us. Why? Not for our sake, but for Your name's sake. For Your glory. For Your name's sake. And so he said, they again apply here to God's glory. And maybe the greatest call for God to grant us forgiveness and the thing that we should most treasure in our hearts is God's glory. We repent against God because we have sinned against the holy God. And it is His reputation It is His character that we have assaulted. And so as we come and we say, Lord, forgive us, we are asking Him to do what He said He would do, that He would forgive. And we do it not for our sake, but for His glory. And so we are called here to repent for God's glory. We do not want God's name to ultimately be trashed through the mud because of who we are and the things that we do. And so we repent so that He might be glorified. So this morning as we look at that, we are again reminded this morning that God judges sin. 
He takes it very seriously. And in fact, there is not only has he in the past dealt with those who have been in disobedience, he deals with people today. We know in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that there are some weak and some sick and some died because they have not honored God. But there is coming an even greater day when the Lord returns and He will ultimately level the scales of justice and He will pour on His wrath on all who disobey Him, all who are opposed to Him. And the only way that we are going to be those that we will escape that day is to be those who have repented, those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we are encouraged to continue to repent, continue to be in right relationship with Him. And we do that because we are His and for His glory. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are reminded today again that you are coming back. And when you come back, you will judge sin. You will deal with all those who oppose you. And it is a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And so we pray this morning that none of us would be those who would be rejecting you, that we would not be those who would live as if Sin is okay. But I pray that you would grant us repentance. And that we would again be reminded of your character and how good you are. And how forgiving you are. And that you would grant us repentance in our hearts that we do not have. And that you would help us to be those who repent because we are your children. And for your glory I pray in your name. Amen.